Let's open our Bibles to Zechariah, which we will be finishing this morning. And um, we're one book away from finishing up the Old Testament. So let's look this morning at Zechariah, the last chapter, and the last two verses. And that day is the title of this message this morning. So in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's houses shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. In chapters 12 through 14, we come to the um, prophetic connection that's going to deal primarily with the second coming of the Lord to this planet. This is the second and final division of the last major section of Zechariah's prophecies. Uh, The primary reason that this is such an important section is that it's quite obvious that Zechariah is presenting that God has his plans that cannot be stopped. It gets into quite a bit of detail. There's quite a bit of prophecy in these chapters. And this morning, once again, we're going to see that God does have a perfect plan to establish his kingdom. Now, the rabbis get really befuddled with certain scriptures like Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about a suffering servant who's going to, and in 52 it says he'll be marred more than any man. And um, his soul will be given for sacrifice for sin. And it says that it pleased the father to bruise him. And that they can't reconcile the Messiah coming in this manner. And yet they failed to understand that Jesus was going to come not only just once, but that he would come again. They were threatened that he was going to establish his kingdom. Even the disciples uh, jockeyed for a position because they thought, surely, a guy can walk on water and and raise the dead, heal the blind, cure the, the, the cripple. There's nothing Jesus couldn't and wouldn't do. So they were persuaded he was a Messiah. So they expected, along with that rationale, that the kingdom would come along with that. But when questioned by Pilate on this very subject, because there is no king if you're a Roman besides the emperor in Rome, and now we have him being called the king of the Jews. I'm quoting John 18, verse 36, as he is being scrutinized by Pontius Pilate about this kingdom, and this is what the Lord said in John 18, 36, He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He came the first time, lowly, humbly, um, to take on um, the sins of the world. And in God's wisdom and in his understanding that he wanted to be broader, that salvation is for the Jews, well, it also says in the Old Testament he'll be a light to the Gentiles. So this was not really understood, I think, until maybe Cornelius, the first Gentile, was actually saved and (laughs) baptized in the Holy Spirit. They couldn't believe it. A Gentile could get saved? Unbelievable. And yet it happened. Now, I've titled this this morning, In That Day, because in that day occurs 18 times in the book of Zechariah. In that day is a time that includes um, the tribulation, which is yet future, but it also goes into and transition into the kingdom age. So when we see this phrase, in that day, it is a reference to the tribulation, And uh, it is a reference also to the kingdom. And we're actually going to be going back and forth between the tribulation this morning and the kingdom. And um, this is just one of 
the phrases that we call the Great Tribulation Period. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm going to quote Jeremiah uh, 30, verses 5 through 7. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that great day, so that there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And we're going to get into the numbers this morning of those that are going to be delivered during this period of time, uh, the Jewish people and those who will not. Now, Daniel also referred to this in the very first verse of Daniel chapter 12, the same period that I'm calling in that day. Um, in Daniel 12 verse 1, Daniel said, at, the t- at that time shall Michael stand up that great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there will be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So Jeremiah spoke of that day, Daniel spoke of that day, and so did our Lord Jesus In Matthew 24, the Lord said, For there shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no one or ever shall be. And except those days would be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now yesterday, um, in men's prayer, um, Again, it's interesting. We're finishing the Old Testament in men's prayer, and we're finishing the uh, Old Testament on Sunday mornings. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to go back to Genesis in men's prayer, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in uh, the book of Matthew. And I just think that's interesting. But yesterday, we were in chapters 6 through 9. And basically, if you've never been to men's prayer, it's my highlight of the week. Um, we go around the table. Each of us takes three to five verses, and everybody reads. And uh, we go around the circle, and then we explain um, what ministered to us. Everybody has some insight, and everybody participates. And when they're done sharing what they read and what hit them and struck them, then we say, I'd like you guys to pray about this. The Bible says men ought always to pray and never to faint. Good place for an amen. Men ought always pray, and we're to pray one for another. Now, I take that literally. So we don't pray for ourselves during this prayer. I pray for the guy sitting on my right. And thus, he will pray for the person sitting on his right. And uh, we start at 8 o'clock, and we go for two and a half hours, and it goes like that. And I can't believe it's that quick. And um, we always leave blessed and refreshed. And we always pray for Sunday morning. We pray for people that aren't saved. We pray for people who are sick right now. I prayed for Joshua and Bethany with with the birth of uh, Ezra Jude. And um, um, that was one of the first things that Chuck said to when we were starting the Calvary Chapels. When when you uh, begin the work, get the men. Not just the women, the gals meet on the other side of the church and do the same thing. But he says, get your men, start praying, and don't quit. And we've done that since the day Calvary Chapel started. And unless I'm traveling, I'm there. I want to be there. And I better get back to the Bible study. (laughs) So, but yesterday we we read chapters 6 through 9 of Revelation. It deals with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. In the seal judgments, one quarter of the earth's population is going to be destroyed. In the trumpet judgments, it says, on top of that, another one-third will die because of the plague of the demon locusts that are going to be released upon planet Earth. It is some of the weirdest stuff in the Bible. But when it says, when these men say there's going to be a time that has never been, this is what I mean. 
Can you wrap your head around roughly half of the world's population gone before you get to the bowl judgments? And um, so when it talks here, we, it's, um, we live in a time of relative normality. Everybody's all psyched because of Super Bowl Sunday. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's okay with me if the Lord comes before the game. How about you? <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you who I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for the Packers. That's what I'm rooting for. But as we started with, um, with chapter 12 and make our way through the events from Jesus' crucifixion to him ruling and reigning in the kingdom age, that's where we're headed this morning. So I'm going to go back, have you go back to chapter 12. This is the final section. And what I'm going to point out primarily is when we read those words, in that day and tie it in with prophetic events, uh, beginning with chapter 12. Um, we find in verses 1 through 3, in verse 3 we read in that day, but the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness, or trembling to the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Now this has not yet happened. And but we have a hint in verse three where it says that it will happen in that day. Clearly a reference to the tribulation that continues on into the millennial. Now, just a real honest question. In order for there to be a Jerusalem they have to be brought back into the land. Bible teachers wrestled with the book of Revelation because it deals with the Jewish people back in the land. Well, they haven't been back in the land since 70 AD. They only started coming back to the land at the beginning of the 1900s. They became a nation 70 years ago next year. So when, it, when we look at this, now Zechariah is telling us the number one problem in the world is going to be Jerusalem. He's going to cause it to be what's keeping world leaders awake at night. And um, it's the headquarters for the three major religions of the world. Israel wants its temple back. They will have it. But you know that all the problems that are taking place in the world primarily are in the Middle East, in Syria, and um, in Iran. Russian boots on the ground, stage set for um, to deal with the problem with Jerusalem. And here Zechariah is talking about it uh, over 500 years before the Lord is even born. All peoples who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth be gathered against it. In that day... I want you to notice in verses 3, 4, 6, 8, and 9, verse 4, in that day, verse 6, in that day, in verse 8, in that day, and in verse 9, in that day, that I will speak to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The nations will attack, and they will come, and unfortunately, we're going to read the numbers when Jerusalem is taken, and we're going to read that the women will be raped, and uh, they will plunder, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But in verse 10, uh, we have this prophecy that now is going to go, and what I want you to be sensitive to as we study this morning is we're going from Jerusalem, not um, is heading into the tribulation period. But now in verse 10, we're in the millennium. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. We should have gotten used to, as we've been making our way through the Bible, that to remember, this, this is the rule rather than the exception. That in one verse, it's going to switch real quick. Such is the case in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on him who they have pierced, 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I can't, um, of course, this is a reference to the crucifixion in verse 10. And I can't adequately come up with the right word to describe the emotion that a Jewish person would have when his whole life he's done nothing more than talk about the Messiah, remembering the feasts, remember Passover, remembering um, tabernacles we'll be talking about this morning. Their whole history, they were able to survive because they maintained their a belief in, uh, in the uh, scriptures. And as a result, when the Messiah finally came, they didn't recognize him. And now they're finding out it was Jesus who was really our Messiah, the one we rejected. So this pastor can't put in the words the intensity. The only thing that Zechariah does here is he tries to explain the amount of grief by having... Let's say you only have one son. He's your boy. And all of a sudden, he's gone. It'll be like one grieving for his firstborn son. And then the rest of this, chapter 11 through 14, basically is saying, leave me alone. I, usually when we have a death, you know, family comes together. And they comfort one another. Not this time. Not this time. This is too much. People want to be that by themselves. So basically, between 11 and 14, it's talking about uh, the house of David. They're going to mourn by themselves, and their wives are going to be by themselves. The house of Levi by themselves. Verse 14, all the families that remain and families by itself and their wives by themselves. It's overwhelming, and they need to get away because it's just too much. Our Messiah, we rejected him, and we're the one that pierced him, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. I want to lay in here a little order of events. In verse 10, it says, The Spirit is going to be poured out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Spirit is not poured out there right now. It's primarily a secular culture. However, the Holy Spirit today abides and um, rests upon the church. And as a result, we are the light of the world through this period of time that we're living in right now. And um, in Romans eleven twenty five, let me go through a progression of what's going to take place next. The rapture is going to take place next. And in order for the spirit to be on Israel, the church has to be removed because right now, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Make sure you're not hiding that light underneath the basket. Let it shine. Let, let, let them know that you're a believer. And don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another good place for an amen. That's our job. That's why we are. And then it says, I don't want you to be, uh, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has happened in part to Israel. They don't get it right now until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now the implication here is the church had a birth at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people got saved. It is in existence to this day. We are proof of that along with Christians all over the world that know Christ. But what this verse is telling us is there's a time when that's going to change and when that change takes place and the spirit in us as we're raptured and taken to heaven, um, then the very next verse says, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn ungodliness to Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So notice the trans, uh, how it trans changes into church age, rapture. Now the spirit, verse 10, is going to be poured out where? On Israel, the Jewish people. That's why Romans 11, verse 25, is a rapture verse, but verse 26 says Israel is going to be saved. 
Not only that, but the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on the entire nation. In men's prayer, yesterday we read chapter 7, where it clearly says 144,000 will be supernaturally sealed. And um, uh, they become protected from these demon locusts that we read about yesterday that have the power to hurt men, but they're not allowed to kill them for five months. Weird chapter. Weird, weird, weird. People will try to kill themselves, but God won't allow their spirits to leave the body. That's weird. And after five months, which just happens to be the same period of time that the waters were on the face of the earth, I find that interesting, that five months they'll have torment. They're, they're locust, And they have a king over them whose name is Abaddon and Apollyon in the Hebrew and the Greek. It's another name for Lucifer. And he's going to open and allow these creatures out. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But just in verse 10 here, as we look, we're finishing chapter 12 now. As we finish this chapter, um, in that day, um, there will be this morning. In the very first chapter of Revelation, verse 7, it says this. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and everyone who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, and who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. So Revelation points us back to Zechariah, and the Lord confirms that when he does come, the nations are going to mourn. It was Jesus. He was the Messiah. And uh, the Lord said they will look on him that pierced him. Brings us to chapter 13. And in chapter 1 and 2, what do we see? In that day. In that day. A fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now we're making our way into the millennial area. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, again, in that day, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and there shall no longer be remembered, and I will cause the prophets, and notice this, the unclean spirits to depart from the land. In the millennium, different from our time that we're living right now, the Bible clearly says here, it speaks of the land being cleansed of demons. In other words, no demon activity allowed taking place during the kingdom age. Um, I will be going to Haiti. People don't talk about demons that here unless, in a rare case, uh, they have. Uh, we've had people in a fellowship with loved ones, uh, literally possessed and, and needed to have. Um, the demons cast out in Jesus' name. And I've been around enough to experience many times over the years the reality of demon activity and where demons came from. In Revelation 12, it tells us that one-third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer. And it makes me wonder, you know, how could, you, how could they do that? What kind of powers and persuasion must Lucifer had in order to allow these holy angels now become fallen angels. So what is a demon? A demon used to be uh, a holy angel, but now they've been cast to the earth. Um, Some are incarcerated in hell. That's Jude verse 6. And the demons that left their proper domain, this is what Jude verse 6 says, that left their proper domain he has reserved in judgment in hell until the day of judgment. Uh, Do you remember the man who had a legion of demons in him in the land of the Gadarenes? Well, the man spoke. And um, the demons, Jesus said, who are you? He says, well, legion, because we're many. And they were actually appealing to the Lord 
not to be sent to this place called the abyss, but instead sent us into the swine. And the Lord granted it, and they ran off a cliff and they drowned. Well, my point is this. There are some demons, there are different orders, uh, different levels of power and strength. We discovered that in Daniel 10. And um, there are some that have access right now. And yet there are some that are so terrible and powerful that they're reserved in chains until the day of judgment. And we read in the ones that, some of these that are, that they are going to be released, some of them, in Revelation 9. This is a verse that we read yesterday in men's prayer. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven. I'll prove in a second as Lucifer. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then it goes on to describe them and their fierceness. And um, I'm not going to read all that, but it says in verse 11, and they have a king of them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek his name is Apollyon, same, same word for Lucifer. And they have a king. And in other words, Joel gets into quite a bit of detail about these particular demons. They all march in order. And um, have you guys seen the, the cute little cartoon with the, um, the boogeyman under the little girl's bed? And um, she's re- really not af- afraid. And um, the demon underneath it says, I can hear you. <laughs> and they're talking, they're making light of it. Well, in the Old Testament, it's nothing to be made light of. It says they have the abilities to climb in your windows. You know, the boogeyman in the closet, this time is going to be real. And yet, the, the fear and the torment that they bring in on people is allowed, but only for five months. My point here is it says in Zechariah 13, verse 2, no demon activity, all unclean spirits are gone. And that's different from the time that we're living in right now. We have three enemies. Um, You know, the lust of the flesh. We have our adversary, the devil, and and the world in which we live. Uh, we're, We're told not to love the world, neither the things in it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Why? Because they're passing away. They're only temporal. So we shouldn't get hung up on worldly things. I want an amen on that one. And we should really be praying for this kingdom to come. This is God's plan. I mean, the big picture is going to heaven. But we have to go through this dark period of time, at least the world does. I don't believe the church does. But called in that day, which is a a picture of the tribulation period. Now, these created beings, like you and me, are eternal. They are disembodied spirits, and they do seek to be clothed. And uh, in the days we're living in, the Pandora's box is thrown wide open. And um, many different ways. God evidently has rules and regulations for demon possession. You actually have to open yourself up to them, either knowingly or unknowingly. I grew up in the 60s. One of the unwitting ways that you can invite a demon into you is to transcendental meditation and the mantras that you're given. You have no idea that you're, you're doing incantations to Hindu demons. The same with yoga. And um, the enemy is so sly and so slick that he's got what we call Christian yoga. And, um, oh, yeah, but I'm just doing it for exercise. You have no idea what you're dealing with. He's that subtle. And so the very movements, it's called the Kundalini spirit, and it's uh, in the shape of a snake. And uh, the exercises is that you do in it, a lot of it is mimicking the Kindaluni spirit. And they have no idea that they're opening themselves up to it. Another is drugs. I came out of the 60s. I did all of them, pretty much all of them. 
and had my own encounters with that dimension and saw demonic spirits. And so they have ways, but um, it's through these means that a person uh, can be possessed by a demonic spirit. And yet today, if you talk about a devil in hell, people giggle and laugh. And, um, (laughs) yeah, right. Who are you kidding? You know, devil, pitchfork, red suit. No, he's the most beautiful creature ever created. Can I say that again? Do you know that? That Lucifer is the wisest and most beautiful of all of God's creation. Does he have one pulled over on us? Oh yeah, the devil, he's ugly. No, he's not. Made in perfect wisdom and perfect beauty. And um, that'll change. So, as we look at um, this verse here, verse 1 and 2, in that day, making the point that they're eternal, therefore there has to be a place for them for eternity. So that in Matthew 24, verse 41, that's why there's a hell. Jesus said, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why does there have to be a hell? Because angels are eternal beings, and so is Lucifer. And these are those who have rejected the gospel, and they are um, also the ones that are cast into the lake of fire. That's why there is a hell, because they are eternal, and they can't be a part of the Lord's kingdom age. Lucifer is bound for a thousand years, remember? But the false prophet... And the beasts are cast immediately before the thousand years into the lake of fire. Verse 1 and 2, no demon activity. You might not think that's a big deal. We usually don't think about it, but it will be. Romans talks about it, waiting for the day when that curse is, is given. Make your way down to verse 6. There's a conversation that somebody has with the Lord, and he said, someone will say to him, the him there is Jesus. What are these wounds that are in your hands? And then the Lord will say, then he will answer, well, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's how he called his people. My friends did this to me. And this, of course, we have in this verse um, a reference to the crucifixion. And in verse 7, we actually have a scripture on the crucifixion. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, and strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, and then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Well, this verse right here, I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 26. So let's take a moment, look at two verses. Matthew 26, I want to draw your attention to verses 30 and 31. This is right after the Last Supper. And they had just finished the Last Supper. And verse 30 says, and when they had sung a hymn. I would love to hear Jesus sing. I wonder what that sounds like. Well, they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will scatter. Well, that's what happened the night he was betrayed. They took him, they beat him, and for fear, the uh, disciples scattered. And they went into hiding after Jesus was crucified for fear of the Jews behind locked doors. And it wasn't until the resurrection that the Lord appeared in the room that they realized everything that he talked about rising again was true. I have you turn here because as we teach 
the entire Bible, I always want to point out where the connections are made. And here's a big one. Zechariah uh, chapter 13, verse 7, is fulfilled. Uh, Jesus says so himself, for it is written, and he quotes Zechariah verbatim. And what happened? Well, the sheep scattered. Jesus was smitten, and the sheep take off. They go into hiding, just like Zechariah said it would. Now, in verse 8, verse 7 was future about, um, you know, when Jesus lived, this would have been about 30, he was 33 years old when he died. Now, between verses 7 and now 8 and 9, we have a gap. And again, I want you to be notice how we, um, we are now going into the tribulation period. So there's a gap of at least 2,000 years between verse 7 and 8 and 9. And I'm going to read 8 and 9, but I'm going to go into, I personally believe that, and, um, that chapter 14 should start with verse 3, not verse 1 because it's a continuation of verse 8 and 9. So I'm going to read now is verses 8 through 14, 2. And it will come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it will be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested, And then they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Notice the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, Half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. All right, I'm going to do this here before I go to Revelation. Um, Much of the church today does not understand the first and second coming of Jesus. So what I'm going to put up on the screen right now and just go over different, I want to point out the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus, you might want to take notes. Or if you want to uh, get this from us later, we could have some printed up. But I'm going to go through these, and I'm going to show the contrast between the next event to take place, the rapture, and then the second coming of Jesus. So in the first one, um, that we have the translation of the believers. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, caught up. And that, um, that's what happens when we are raptured. There are the scriptures that go along with it. But when Jesus comes at the second coming, there is no translation. Um, the second one is at the rapture, we go to heaven. And at the second coming, the saints actually return with Jesus to the earth. The rapture, the next one down, the earth is not judged. We are taking out for that very reason because the earth is going to be judged. And the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. The next one, the rapture is what I like to call imminent. It's at any moment. It's signless. Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour, but it'll be like the days of Noah. That's a big hint. So the, the rapture can happen at any time. Uh, contrasted to the second coming, it follows a definite predicted signs. Remember we read earlier, Jesus said, unless I return, no flesh would be saved. Man would kill themselves. So basically, the Lord is intervening, coming early, so that mankind does not destroy themselves. The rapture here, not in the Old Testament, I don't fully agree with this because guys, I took the guys yesterday to Isaiah chapter um, 26 and read some scriptures there 
that I, I think do indicate that the Lord calls his people to enter into their chambers for a moment, just for a little while, and shut themselves in. It says, for the Lord goes forth to fight on the earth. And um, I personally believe those are rapture scriptures. But in the second coming, um, the second coming predicts often in the Old Testament. The next one down, the rapture before the day of God's wrath. But in the second coming, when Jesus comes, he concludes the day of God's wrath. In the rapture, he comes in the air for his own to claim. At the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own, with his bride. At the rapture, only his own will see him, will be caught up to be with him. At the second coming, it says, every eye will see him. Matthew chapter 24, every eye will see him. And the last one, the rapture, is when the tribulation begins in a second coming, when Jesus comes, uh, the tribulation is over and the millennial kingdom begins. Um, this is a great chart to have to help people understand the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming. Turn with me. It says here that two-thirds of them will be cut off and one-third is going to make it. Let's explain that by turning to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 is in the middle of the tribulation period. Satan, it says in verse 7, and war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels and they were cast out of heaven. And it says in verse 12 that when the devil was come down to the earth, he has great wrath because he knows he has a short time. How much time does he have? Three and a half years. Now, in verse 13, we're talking about one-third because Zechariah tells us that one-third is going to be refined. They're going to be broken. But that means two-thirds are going to be destroyed. Gang, it's hard for me to say what I just said. And we should have a Selah after that verse because we're talking about the Jewish people and the ones that will be killed during this period of time. And that's why Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolations, flee, run. Well, one-third of them uh, will make it. And we look at verse 13, it says, Now the dragon, which is the devil, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. The woman is Israel, who gave birth to the male child. Jesus is the son of David from the tribe of Judah. So it's a picture of Israel bringing forth uh, Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a times, another way of saying three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Could be an army, uh, could be a, a literal flood. But the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he goes back and evidently is successful with the two-thirds going after them while one-third of them is supernaturally protected. The question is where? And I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 16 because it tells us where. Isaiah chapter 16, the first four verses. Verse 1 says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the lamb, to Selah. Now, Selah is another way of saying Petra. To the mount 
of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, and so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Then he said, Take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. These would be the third that is fleeing. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell in you, O Moab. Uh, Modern day Jordan used to be Moab. Petra is in Moab. Selah. And it's called Petra and Selah in verse 1. And that says, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, a reference to the Antichrist who is after them, pursuing him. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. So again, the importance of the Old Testament giving us um, the details. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter now um, 14. Chapter 14, verses, uh, the first, we made it now to 3 and 4. And what we have here is the second coming of the Messiah, picking it up in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Which nations? Well, the ones that are coming against Jerusalem. As he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces towards the east. And the Mountain of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. So this is the second coming. And when he arrives, Isaiah says, In 63, it says, who is this riding from Basra, which is Petra, with his garments stained with blood? He's trampled out the winepress, and he has defeated those who have come against him. And this is a a fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he destroys those nations with just the, the sword of his mouth. But then after he, Israel calls upon him, Remember the Lord said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at the end of this period of time, they are persuaded that he is the Messiah. And so the remnant says, Lord, hear us. And this is when he comes. He's been waiting for that. That's why the only card the enemy can play is the destruction of the Jewish people. And it's the reason for anti-Semitism in the world today. So we read, I'm going to have you turn to Acts chapter 1 and remind you of something here. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 1, um, verses 9 and 11 actually. He says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, they're on the Mount of Olives, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this was the first time Jesus bodily was taken into heaven. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men, angels, stood by in white apparel, And who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the same Jesus that left 2,000 years ago, now flip back to Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Just like the angel said, he's going to leave from the Mount of Olives and then he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And when he does, there's going to be a great earthquake. And as a result of uh, that earthquake, we read um, 
There'll, the light will be changed. Let me go down. It, it tells us in verse 8 that when his feet hit the Mount of Olives, there's a split. And verse 8 tells us, in that day it shall be that living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, and half of them towards the western sea, both in summer and in winter, it will occur. Now, we've already read, remember, in Zechariah, he was called the branch. And one of the things that he's going to do is personally have oversight of the building of the temple. And I took you to um, um, Ezekiel, where in great detail it explains this. Well, now imagine the temple being built. And now we have waters coming out from underneath the throne, half of them going down to the east where there's a sea, that's the Dead Sea, and then the other half go towards the Mediterranean. I'm going to have you turn to Ezekiel 47. That gives us quite a bit of detail about this. Ezekiel 47. And uh, my title here says, River from the Temple. River from the temple. We'll read the first 12 verses here. In that day. So Ezekiel is taken into the future. Verse 1, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. This will be the millennial temple. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. And from the front of the temple, from east, the waters flowed from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the lion in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubics. And he brought me through the water and the water came up to my ankles. And he measured another thousand, and the waters were up to his knees. And again he measured a thousand, and the water was up to his waist. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river I could not cross, for the water was too deep. The water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. So he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned, there along the bank of the river were many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region. And it goes down into the valley and enters the sea. This is the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. The concentration of salt is such, the emollients and the minerals in it, um, um, it's buoyant. You can float on this water, but there's no life in it. And when these living waters hit the Dead Sea, when it reaches the sea, the waters are healed. And it will be that every living thing that moves, whether where, wherever the river goes, will live, and there will be a very great multitude of fish because the waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. And it will be that fishermen will stand by it at En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is a quarter of a mile from the Dead Sea. It used to be right up next to it many, many years ago. But it's an oasis. It's one of the few places down there that has, for those of you who've been there and seen it, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's the place of the... Um, um, the wild goat. That's what it's known for. It's been called that since David was there. They've been there for 3,000 years. They're still there today. But it's not a place where you go fishing. It's a place where you watch the wild goats and, uh, and the little cooties. Uh, I did not say cootie. I said coonie, okay? And they will be places to spread their nets. The fish will be the same kind in the Great Sea. Well, that's the Mediterranean. In other words, the same fish that live in the Mediterranean Sea are someday going to be in the Dead Sea. Why? Because there's living waters. I wonder what living waters taste like. It has magical powers. This is a miracle, gang. And as soon as it hits the Dead Sea, life. And the waters are healed. 
And um, I'll be coming back to this verse in verse 8 in, uh, in Zechariah, but let's go back and finish up the chapter. So verse 8 says again, in that day, interesting, in that day, this is a day in the kingdom age, the waters will be healed and it will flow to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea. Verses 9 through 11 is finally our Lord Jesus Christ is going to reign in his kingdom. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one, and the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Reban south of Jerusalem, and shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin gate to the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Haniel to the king's winepress. The people will dwell in it no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem will be safely inhabited for the next 1,000 years. 12 through 15, um, but for time's sake, I'll just tell you, it goes back to how God will plague those nations who won't, who came against Jerusalem. And then in verses 16 to 19, the... Um, verse 16 says, And it come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem, well, they'll go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you don't come, the rest of these verses that lead to our text is a punishment. In other words, if you're a nation living during the millennium and you don't go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, then you don't get any rain. That's what it says in verse 19. If the families in Egypt decide, I don't want to to go there, well, then you don't get any rain. And you will be judged by a plague of not having any rain. Which brings us to our text. Now we can start our Bible study. You ready? (laughs) It ends with, And in that day holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bills of the horses, The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls of the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And the book of Zechariah is over. But I want a personal application this morning. Something I've never read in a commentary. I've never heard anybody else teach this or say this but I couldn't help but make a connection. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 8, where it talks about um, these living waters flowing out of the temple, um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because as we think about something other than a prophetic Bible study that deals with history that has been, and history that is going to be, I want to leave you with something to challenge you as we are living in times where I don't want one of my friends to enter this terrible period of time. I know what's going to happen during this period of time. You don't want your friends to go through this terrible period of time. Well, let me tell you something. If the water is flowing out of the temple, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13.6 says, Don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In chapter 6 of uh, 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is the temple and that the Holy Spirit who is in you, you have from God and you're not your own? Turn with me to John chapter 7 as we close this up this morning. John chapter 7, the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. This was an eight-day feast where they would go down to the Pool of Siloam for seven days and bring water out and pour it on the temple steps. It was symbolic. They were doing it so that the people would never forget that God provided water for 40 years from the rock that followed them, 1 Corinthians 4. And now, the last day, everybody's being really quiet. 
because there's eight days to the Feast of Tabernacles. Seven days, they'd go down and bring the water and pour it out. But the eighth day, they were contemplating, meditating, thinking about it. God provided 40 years. He provided water. And it was during this, on verse 37 of chapter 7, says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. So it would have been quiet, but now all of a sudden this is about water. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, if we're already the temple, now what do we have coming out of the temple? We have the Holy Spirit that's supposed to go out of you as living flows of living water. And as an exhortation, as we close this morning, here's the picture. We are the temple. We have living water in us. And the great commission and the importance, there's one more verse I want you to see, so look at Acts chapter 1 again. But this time, verses 4 through 8. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything until the promises come, which was the Holy Spirit. And then he said that John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And... Um, When that happens, you'll receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to be in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now we have the commission, and I'm going to commission you as you go out into the mission field today. We've just finished the book of Zechariah, talking about this terrible time that's going to come. Do you believe it? You see the world set for these things possibly happening and unfolding? And the question is, what are we doing about it? Well, Matthew 28, go therefore make disciple of all nations. We call that the great suggestion. Right? The great suggestion. No, we've been commissioned. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you're done doing that, then teach them. What? Everything that the Lord taught the disciples. Everything that I taught you. And remember that I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Just as there's living waters that will someday flow from the millennial temple, healing waters. They have the ability to take something that was dead and bring it back to life. Now the Lord is telling us that we're the temple and out of you is going to flow living waters. Do you know that um, you have a commission to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people don't have to enter? And when you do, you have something that was dead, spiritually speaking. And with you sharing Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the potential for bringing something that was dead back to life. They are born again. I've never seen it before in the scripture. And uh, tying it together, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit that, like I said, I've never read it in a commentary, never even thought of it before. I had to get up off my couch because the Lord gave it to me while I was watching something on TV. I got up and I wrote it down and I'm sharing it here this morning and then I'm going to say as and even the Lord's with us even to the end of the age. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and pray. This is about past my time. Lord, thank you for the book of Zechariah. And um, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words now and breathe life into them, and that we would leave this place not just with a prophetic history lesson of what has been and what's going to be, but more importantly, an admonition 
a reminder of the Great Commission, that we are here as your ambassadors to share with people that are lost, that are headed for this terrible period of time that we don't want anybody to go through. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be upon us, that they would um, come to their senses if they're not saved. We remember again, Lord, people that we've maybe given up on. Lord, put them back in first place in, in our lives and our thinking and help us remember the most important thing we can do is to seek first your kingdom and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.